Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. This is Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. So Chris, last episode we recorded... Uh, we titled it Where to Begin, and it was just uh, an episode that was short and sweet, and we just kind of talked about how to begin a contemplative practice. And the first thing that we discussed was just, well, let's come up with some ideas. And and someone might ask the question, what makes it contemplative? Why, what practice is contemplative, and why would it be considered that? And as we were talking pre-show, any practice can be contemplative if we start thinking about it. Right. As soon as you ask that question, it becomes contemplative. Yeah. So contemplative practices are practices that bring awareness to us in the moment, that uh, open our minds to meaning and uh, give us direction based on the activities that we perform. And um, they don't have to be ritualistic necessarily. Most of them are habitual in some sense. So there is some sense of ritual that, that goes along with it, but they don't have to be that way. But really, it's just about thinking about them. And as soon as you bring thought and attention to anything, awareness, that's the core of contemplation. Yeah, this question came up because of one of the practices that we've tried out over either over the last since last we recorded or, you know, for some time now or whatever on and off. We've been on and off the wagon. Both of us have been there. We've all been there. Right. Uh, But, you know, I was asking, how is taking a cold shower or a cold plunge contemplative? Uh, I don't know that it's obvious. I think you've already answered the question by saying that as soon as you ask that question, it becomes contemplative. But I, I'll add something. You know, when I think about doing it every day, the flinch doesn't go away. So that flinch, that moment of, did you notice I just breathed in? I took a deep breath. It's like that, right? Okay, I have to do this. I'm going to turn on this cold water. I'm going to climb in this cold tub or this cold neighbor's pool or whatever. And it takes getting up the nerve every single time. Is it that way for you? You've been doing this a long time. Uh, no, I. the only thing that's a flinch for me is just finding the time to do it when it's convenient because I know that after I go outside and sit in my ice bath that I've got to go back in, dry off, go take a shower, get dressed again. It's just kind of a an annoyance. So unless I find space and time for it, then I won't do it. And and so I've I've tried to just find space and time for it. And when I do that, it's it's fairly easy for me at this point. It's something I've been doing for going on like five or six years or whatever. And uh, so I, I've lost the physical flinch. I don't have that happen. I don't even have the big deep breath that happens as soon as I get in anymore. In fact, I consciously tell myself beforehand not to have any reaction. And by doing that, I've just kind of learned to go into it in more of a flow state and not have any reactions either physical or mental, that might affect my experience. Well, this is great, Riley. I love it. The, the master and, and his disciple, in this case, on this one contemplative practice, you're the big dragon, I'm the, no, you're the big panda, I'm the tiny dragon. 
That's a great book, by the way, if, if you haven't read it. So, you know, for me, I get that too. That's part of it. It does help if you're trying to establish a ritual or a habit, if you can minimize the friction. So I started going to my neighbor's pool. My neighbor casually mentioned when he came over for a movie night that his pool was at 45 degrees. And I thought, man, that's colder than my shower. That's colder than I can get in my bathtub um, unless I add ice, right? So I went over there and it was great. It was the coldest plunge I've ever taken. You know, at 45 was the surface temperature. So my ankles were a lot colder than that. I'm not sure how cold it was. But there's too much friction to have to, you know, put on a swimsuit and walk down the street, you know, a few houses away. And then there's the dog. I was attacked by a dog when I was a boy, so I'm always nervous about the dog. And then, you know, go in the pool and come home. And you have to figure out how to get from the front door to the bathroom without getting the whole house wet. And then you still have to take a shower. So I get it. I get it. I tried the bathtub. I tried with ice. It didn't do a whole lot. I don't have enough ice. My, my freezer doesn't make enough ice. You have another idea, right? And it's not original, but you're working on something. Right now, you've got winter in Utah. That helps a lot. But what else? What do you got uh, in the works? Yeah, I've thought about taking a, just a big chest freezer. This is something that's pretty common. You see videos on the internet and whatever, just taking a chest freezer and converting it into a cold tub during the summer so that when things heat up, you still have a place to go that's you know a little colder than you can get just out of the tap. I think my tap water is probably around 60 during the summer, something like that. And that's just it's not near cold enough to get the experience. But yeah, so thought about doing something like that. I have to say, though, you know, Riley, I'm, I'm considering doing that, too. But for beginners, you know, if the listener is just starting out with this, 60 degrees is plenty cold enough if you're used to taking a hot shower. I remember telling myself in the summer here in Bakersfield, where it gets to be, it's usually 105 every day. It can go up to 115. The water doesn't come out that cold. At first, it does. There's that flinch. There's that deep breath, whatever. You get that moment. But then it's not that cold. But I thought, hey, if I get used to this, while it's summer, as it gets colder, you know, as, as it turns from summer into fall into winter, I've been getting used to it gradually. Well, I actually lost interest. I fell off the wagon. It just wasn't that cold. And so I've gotten into it now during the winter, and it's still not as cold here in California as it is where you are. Yeah, I'm, I'm breaking ice every morning, and it's, it's cold. But I'm still getting a lot out of it. I, I really am. And I wish, you know, I wish I could produce more ice. I'm, I'm really thinking about that freezer idea. But I think, you know, again, just anything that we can do, just taking a step in the right direction. You just got to start somewhere, right? Well, and so to kind of delve into this one, as far as the contemplative aspect of it, we know that there's physiological benefits. These have been touted for years. The Wim Hof method gained a ton of popularity based almost entirely on the, the physical and health benefits. But uh, for us, for you and, me, and I, I think we kind of experience this the same way. For me, it's really just about getting my mind right finding the right mindset to step into it without reaction again, without any kind of, uh, it's almost Buddhist. It's like without attachment or judgment, right? Stepping into it as neutral as possible and then trying to retain that neutrality through the whole process when there's an extreme being experienced. And that, that can be seen as sort of a metaphor for life when you're in some kind of an extreme emotional situation or, um, you know, interpersonal at work or in, in your family life or whatever, trying to remain somewhat detached from the emotions or not being attached to an outcome can be pretty helpful. And so I, I relate it to that. I also relate it to just being able to control my, my emotions, control my breathing. I know that's a physical thing, but it's very much a spiritual thing as well. 
Well, it's the the life breath, right? Ruach, the the life breath. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've thought about this. You know, as scientismists, as many of us are, even unwittingly today, we think we're breathing for oxygen. But come on, it's a life force we breathe, right? Prana, they call it in in the Hindu tradition. So I can give you an analogy, Riley, from from outside of of this cold bath or cold shower experience that that I think underscores your point. You know, I've been rear-ended a couple of times. And on one of those occasions, you know, I saw it coming and I made it a point to relax, to not tense up. And you just are going to get injured more if you tense up. I mean, all things being equal, you'd rather not have a car crash. But uh, in my experience, at least, and this is anecdotal and and this is not, um, I'm not a, a doctor, I'm not giving health advice, but in my experience, just relaxing made for less injury. What do you think? Yeah, no, I'm sure. And and maybe that becomes somewhat autonomic with more practice. So that's kind of the hope is that you can build a, a foundation of certain skills that become almost second nature where you don't have to think about them as much. And then you can move on to the next contemplative practice while you're still performing the first. Yeah, let me stretch this analogy and hope it doesn't break. You know, this is now going outside of cold showers into the idea of just doing the thinking up front, right? When you're in the thick of thin things, you become reactive. But what if we take time? And this is, I think, what a meditation practice is about, is getting used to just being able to control our breathing and our emotions, as you said. So it's going to be hard for anyone, I think, in the thick of thin things who doesn't have practice to remain calm, to stay calm and carry on, as they say, right, on the internet. But, you know, if you have practice or if you've thought about things in advance, I can think of a time when I was driving down the freeway in the middle of nowhere in Kansas on my way to Thanksgiving dinner, and I hit some black ice. And all of a sudden, the car went, you know, 360, 720, one more turn. This is where my uh, my mathematician skills uh, end. But, you know, three times I went around, and then I was able to, I was able to calmly steer through it and out of it and keep going. And this is because that's something that I, as a driver and as a, someone who's a, an enthusiast behind the wheel and have raced cars, it's something that I've thought about and, and practiced in my mind. Right? You can practice things in your mind before they become a reality. There's the idea of premeditatio malorum, right? The premeditation of evils. What if this happens? What am I going to do? That's another contemplative practice from the Stoics, right? So another thing that has been helpful to me is just having a consistent meditation practice is learning how to rescue yourself from various situations through breathing. And lately, I can talk about this as it relates to our last episode and the things that we've been starting as far as practices go. I think this relates to it because in the last couple of weeks, I've I've entered into a contract to purchase a business and I'll keep it kind of vague because nothing's really progressed, but it's been causing me some angst at night. So I've got my regular work and then I've got the work that I'm trying to do with the purchase of this business, uh, along with other responsibilities in the home and whatnot. And so at, at night, it's caused me a fair bit of anxiety. And as anyone who's got nighttime anxiety like I do can attest, it's like, you cannot sleep. It, you will fixate on this thing and stay fixated on it longer than is normal in a daytime, just because it's nighttime and you have nothing else to think about or concentrate on. So this thing is going to bug you until it's resolved somehow. This is the proverbial what keeps you up at night, huh? Yes. Yeah. And the reason why it keeps you up is because there's nothing else to distract you away from it. It's like the thing. And so you're going to fixate. And what I've been able to do lately, the last couple of weeks, is I've been sort of fixated and anxious about this this new development in my life, is to 
is to breathe through it. Because I realized, I don't know, I was watching a podcast or listening to a podcast somewhere that said, in reality, humans are terrible multitaskers. Like we're just not really able to do it. Our brains won't allow us functionally to do more than one thing at a time. It's almost impossible. I've, I've brought to my attention this idea that in those moments, if I focus on something else and really fixate on that thing, that I can actually distract myself from the anxiety that's besetting me. And so this unitasking idea has been sort of an obsession lately. And you can say that I've been contemplating it pretty deeply. And unitasking, obviously, just being the opposite of multitasking, just doing one thing. And I know that I can do one thing pretty well. I'm fairly well practiced at breathing. I understand what various types of breathing and modes of breathing can do for me. And so what I've just been doing is breathing through this anxiety. And it's been miraculous for me. Just And, and it shouldn't be because I've been doing this long enough that I should know the benefit of breathing. But I hadn't really used it as extensively as I should have in the nighttime during those anxious moments. And it's been awesome. I've been able to breathe through the anxiety to the point where I just kind of forget I'm even anxious. And it's just basically fall asleep at that point. I love it. You know, the, the masters, the gurus, uh, which we are not, all tell us, you know, like, like I think of Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, he says, when you're washing dishes, wash dishes. Right? When you're walking, walk. In fact, somebody asked him once, you know, what it meant to be a Buddhist. I think this was Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, he says, well, we eat and we breathe. And the, the person asking says, well, I eat and I breathe. What's the difference? And he says, when we eat, we know we're eating. When we breathe, we know we're breathing, right? That the idea is to be focused on what you're doing. And I, you know, I love to listen to audiobooks while I cook or do dishes or whatever. And my kids do the same. But from time to time, I take the time to just do the thing that I'm doing. I love ironing. I consider it a meditation. I love doing dishes, again, without the audiobook. If I do it without the audiobook, it becomes a meditation. And even when I got into the cold bathtub, I thought, well, here I am for 20 minutes, and I already have to focus on my breath. I may as well make it a meditation. Well, and I think what we talked, to our point that we talked about earlier, when you make something fairly habitual and it becomes second nature, you can actually do that basic thing while you're doing something else. And, and that's, while that's a sort of multitasking, the only one you're focused on is the one that hasn't become completely habitual. And so again, like when you talk about Thich Nhat Hanh and that quote, you know, when we're eating, we're eating, when we're breathing, we're breathing. It doesn't mean they're not breathing while they're eating. That's right. And, and so there's definitely some sense of making at least one of those autonomic while you're doing the other or concentrating on the other. And we can do that with some of our other practices. You know, what, we, what I learn anyway from cold plunges, cold showers is how to relax my muscles and how to breathe. Yeah. And if I can take that same thing and do that automatically and apply it to other circumstances, that's a way of effectively multitasking while doing just the one important thing. Yeah. You know, I took a, a walk earlier today and my intention was to get in a walk. You know, I need to spend some time exercising for my back. Walking is one way. Riding my bike is another. Riding my bike is preferable to walking, but walking works too. And so on a windy day, I'd rather walk than ride my bike. And I also wanted to read. So now I'm walking and reading. Now I sound, I sound like I'm off the wagon, right? I'm not really doing the thing the way I'm supposed to be doing it. But here's what happened. My walking slowed down because of my reading. And then I noticed I was breathing deeply. And so really, the walking was something I was doing without thinking. And the breathing was something I was doing without thinking. And I was just focused on the reading. So instead of saying I was walking and breathing and reading a book, I was just reading a book. 
And it's funny how that one took precedence. Like the reading the book actually directed how you walked and how you breathed. So that, there's a lesson in that too. I, the other day, I just did an experiment for myself. I wanted to read something from one of my screens and type it while singing a song and to see how it would affect my brain. And what happened was, is while I was reading and typing, I began typing what I was singing. How about that? Yeah. So we're not great at multitasking. There's always some kind of dominant task that takes over. So anyway, that's something that's been on my mind. I've been thinking about. That's a contemplative practice now because I'm thinking about it. I love it. You know, pre-show, you were telling me about your unitasking. And I mentioned Cal Newport. I'm just going to mention this uh, on air here because I thought everyone knew about Cal Newport and you didn't. So who knows who else doesn't know? Let's bring it up. I'm probably the only one. Who knows? You know, he's written a book called Deep Work. And he's, it's all about the same thing you told me you've been doing, which is just focusing on one task at a time. Now, in this, in his case, it's about work, right? There's also, and I can't remember if this is something he goes into. I did read his book, but I read a lot of books. There's the Pomodoro technique. So however long he does it, the point is to spend a lot of time doing deep work where you're not interrupted, where you're not getting the dings and the pings and the interruptions so you can actually get stuff done. He's a scholar who publishes a lot. And when you're a scholar, that's what there is to do, right? And it's challenging. Not everybody finds it easy. For him, he at least makes it look easy. And it's this deep work, this unitasking, as you call it, that makes it possible. So there's the Pomodoro technique where you take a kitchen timer. I think, you know, one of those tomato timers. Pomodoro is Italian for for tomato, but you can use your phone. It doesn't matter. As long as your phone doesn't get in your way and interrupt you, right? And so you just set a timer for 25 minutes and you spend that 25 minutes deeply focused on one thing, whatever it is you're doing. And then you take a five minute break and you can check your email and your phone messages and go to the bathroom and whatever. That's the idea. Yeah. No, I think that's great. So hearkening back to the last episode again, there was a couple of commitments of things that we said we were going to try to do. And one of them I said I was going to try to do was this one word journaling where each day through at various times throughout the day, as you think about it, you just write down the one word related to how you feel. And I think right after we recorded that episode, which has been a couple of weeks now, I got super sick. And so every single day, the only thing I felt was misery, <laughs> tired, exhausted angry, (laughs) just all these negative feelings. And to be honest, I just kind of quit doing it. I I mean, I don't think it was consciously because I didn't want that negative negativity in my life or anything like that. It was nothing like that. Well, it was there no matter what. You just noticed it, right? Yeah, I know. It just, no, I just got distracted from it and I just kind of quit doing it. And I guess there's a lesson in that. Honestly, all these practices that we're trying to do and trying to be more intentional about our lives, this isn't like a one way road. It's like a windy, two-way, messy traffic jam. And sometimes we get it right. And sometimes we just kind of fall off, like you said, fall off the wagon on some of your other practices. And I'm okay with that. You know, some things stick, some things don't. It's almost like if you're not invested or committed to something uh, yourself and the idea almost didn't uh, originate with you, then maybe you're less invested in it. There's all kinds of reasons why this happens, but for some reason I didn't, uh, that one didn't take for me. So at some point I may, may try to pick that up again, but, uh, right now I'm kind of working on a couple other things. One of which is I'm playing my instrument more. So I'm, I'm learning more songs on guitar and I, I love that time, man. That is, it's very intensely focused time. Um, it can be a little discouraging as you try to learn new songs, but the joy you get from accomplishing it when you're done and then sharing it with family or whoever is is pretty cool. So I've enjoyed that. I love that. I don't play any instruments. I have done the writing down my feelings. So that started for me 
with some CBT therapy that I did. It was during the lockdown phase of the pandemic, you know, and I was asked to write down my feelings at various times during the day. And again, the reason for one word is if it's more than one word, it's not a feeling. You can try this out, right? Because once it goes beyond one word, you're explaining things. And that's not a feeling. That's your reaction to the feeling. So what's the feeling? So there are a couple of ways I've done this. Well, it just reminds me of, of that Brene Brown work on emotional intelligence and how important it is, she says anyway, to have a vocabulary for your emotions. Yeah. You know, sometimes uh, there are a couple of ways I've done this. You know, I've, I've come into seeing the same thing over and over as you did, Riley. So that may not be unique to your sickness. You know, here's what I got. I've done it a couple of ways. One, every morning. I, ha- I mentioned that I have a journal template. Every morning it asks me, how are you feeling? That's in, that's in the template. And so I have to answer that. And so many times because I struggle with sleep and I have for years. And I say I struggle with sleep because it's either I struggle falling asleep or I struggle staying asleep, or I struggle resting while I'm sleeping, or I struggle getting enough sleep, but it's always something sleep related. And so, so many times in the morning, it's just tired. That's it. That's all I have to say. But you know, just noticing that, just knowing that, that makes a difference. That's a contemplative practice. And when I was writing down my feelings throughout the day, and I did this for weeks on end and reported back to a therapist, you know, I found patterns, right? This is the idea is to write down how you're feeling in one word throughout the day, and then Don't look at it, you know, go at least a week and then look at it, a week or two, then look at it and see what kind of patterns you identify. And that was really helpful and insightful for me. I got a lot out of that. So I'd recommend, you know, trying it again sometime. Yeah, I like that. I like the pattern recognition idea. To me, that's very contemplative. When you start being aware of how you feel and what, how your environment affects you. Um, I, I use that principle a lot with the things that I consume, whether it's media or food. I try to be very aware of how it makes my body feel, whether it affects my other patterns of behavior throughout the day, whether it's work, sleep, interaction with people. And so I think that's a good one. Pattern recognition is super contemplative. Yeah. Earlier, I said something about using your phone to time yourself for these, um, you know, whatever you're doing, the Pomodoro timers, whatever you want to notice and and focus on the time setting timers. The thing about the phone though is it can be such a distraction. So another practice, I think I said I was going to take this one on. No, I didn't, but it is one I took on. I, I decided to try phone fasting, Riley. I know you've done some stuff with your phone too since we last recorded. Here's what I did. I said, okay, let me set aside the phone one day a week. So what was really interesting about this for me, Riley, is how much I had to think about it ahead of time because you're giving up the phone. So you have to think about so much of the experience wasn't the time without the phone, although I have things to say about that too. It was the time preparing to set aside the phone, right? There were so many things I had to think about. One of them, by the way, just, you know, practically speaking is I had to come up with a day where, uh, especially with my wife out of town, with me being the the single parent at home, where I wasn't going to have to worry about my kids being able to reach me. You know, that was one thing. And then you think, what are the things that I'm going to need that are on my phone? Let me get those. And I got out my notebook and I got out my fountain pen. So my bullet journal, my fountain pen. And I couldn't, you know, commonplace on my phone as I usually do when reading. But man, I spent a lot of time, um, the Saturdays that I've done this, I spent a lot of time in books with pen and paper and loving it. And I'll tell you something else. You know, I, I was at, I did keep my watch on. So this is a question too. How am I going to pay for stuff, right? If I'm, if I'm using my phone to pay for stuff, how am I going to do that? I thought, do I just turn on the phone just to pay for stuff? 
do I have it on me, but with the whatever. So there's different ways you can do this, right? So what I did is I used my watch to pay. And then I locked my keys in my car, Riley. I was at the bookstore. I was sitting at the cafe. I was reading. And I locked my keys in my car. And I thought, well, I've got to call for roadside assistance. What can I do, right? So I had to turn on the watch. I first called home to see about a key. Then I called roadside assistance. And look what happened. I didn't need a phone in the end. Here's what happened. While I was waiting, because they wanted me to wait 45 minutes, which is unusual. Uh, I think whoever took the job should have said no if they were going to take that long. But here's what happened. A tow truck driver pulled into the parking lot of the bookstore, where across from the bookstore, there's a fast food place. And the guy driving the truck walks into the fast food place. I walk over there. I say hi. ask him if he'll help me. He unlocks the car for me and doesn't even charge me. And I canceled the, you know, I canceled the roadside assistance. So I didn't even need a phone, right? If you just have faith, right? You got to have faith. <laughs> and just, there is a way, right? I mean, come on, we used to do this without a phone. It can be done, right? The reason why I think that's funny is I'm, I'm just finishing up Les Mis. And there's so many instances in that book where, you know, one of the main characters, whether it's Valjean or, or someone else, will help someone who doesn't deserve it. And then later on in the book, that person is like their salvation. Um, it, it just that kind of underscores it to me. Sometimes when you just do the right thing for the right thing's sake, it turns out pretty good. <laughs> so you mentioned this phone thing. And the, and the thing that I've done is I have moved all of my socials to the very last page of my phone where it's not like the first thing I see when I turn on my phone. And I turned off all of my notifications on my phone. Um it, it, it's interesting that we need these notifications because we actually don't. We think we need them, but we don't. We don't need notifications to tell us when we have an email or a like on a social or even a text message or something that is like more important, you know, a message from a friend. We don't need notifications for that stuff. In fact, we can just treat it like a tool rather than something that is controlling us. And a tool you pick up when you need it. You know, like whether it's a hammer or wrench or whatever, you go get it when you have a need for it. And it's not necessary to be told by the tool when to use the tool. I don't need a hammer yelling at me, hey, you need me right now. No, I don't need that. I know well enough when to use the tool and when not to use the tool. And so I turned off all my notifications. And it's actually a lot more satisfying to open up, let's say, my email app and see. 15 emails because I wasn't notified of any of them. And I just had the desire to go and look and see what I need to accomplish in my work or whatever. It's a lot more satisfying to see 15 emails than to see one on every single notification to be bonged or binged or dinged or donged every time a single email comes through. It's, it's like very Pavlovian what that does to you. And so by removing all of my notifications, I freed up so much of my time and attention to actually be more of a unitasker back to what I was trying to do earlier. Yeah, I can see how these things dovetail. Yeah, I can spend 25 minutes consistently, let's say, learning a new song on guitar. And then when I'm good and ready, I can go to my phone and say, oh, I've got 15 emails. Fine. I can dedicate 25 minutes to emails instead of every 30 seconds being interrupted by another notification. So anyway, those are some things that were helpful for me in trying to be more focused. Let me just make a confession here now that you mentioned that, you know, and since you've made your confession. So my confession was going to be I'm off the meditation wagon. I fall off the wagon once in a while. I get back on. All you have to do is focus on one breath, right? So I can start anytime. But here's the thing. This morning, I was reading some poetry before the walk. 
I was actually sitting in a cafe reading some poetry. And I wanted to share. Now, without the phone, I would have to write down at least the page number, if not the poem. And then I would have to later on share it, right? So because I have the phone, I just stop reading, take a picture, send it to someone. I may have sent one to you. I don't remember. So then same thing, you know, you, because the phone is there, you get interrupted. By the way, if you sent somebody something, they're going to reply. Right? So I invited more interruptions. And I think, you know, I've, I'm doing this all wrong. If I just set aside the phone, turn off the notifications, I can sit and read poetry. Oh, I love that idea about inviting interruptions. Isn't that kind of what we do every time we put a post on social? Because every time someone hits that like button and you get a little heart that jumps up at you on the screen or a notification or bing bong, ding dong, you, you invited that. That's an interesting way to, to look at it and think about it. You know, in addition to the deep work that turning off notifications has, you know, helped you with, right? The idea of unitasking. There's also something else that that shows up for me when you say, instead of getting a, a notification for every email, you decide when you look at your email, you find 15 or whatever. Well, now guess what? Now you're into another productivity tip, which is batching. It's way easier to answer all your email at once than to stop every so often and answer one email at a time. And anything else you're doing, like batching is a principle that I try to apply as often as possible. Doing the same, whatever activity I have to do, if I can put all the same activity together and, and what's called a batch, right? And, and do some batching. That really helps to get more done quickly, right? It's just, it's so helpful. So we've identified what a half dozen or so practices that we've tried to implement over the last, you know, a couple of weeks since we recorded that last episode. And so let's talk about the practicalities of this. Like what happens when you just aren't consistent and or you screw it up or whatever, the discouragement and the negativity that you feel from not being able to accomplish pretty basic task. I'd love to answer that question by going into meditation because for anyone who hasn't tried it, or even those who have tried it and quit, because often what happens is your first experience is, I can't do this. I'm not supposed to have any thoughts, which isn't true, by the way. And you have thoughts. And then you start having thoughts about how you're having thoughts. And you beat yourself up for having thoughts and having thoughts about thoughts. And that's not meditation, right? So the, the idea of meditation, and this applies to, I think, answers your question in every, every case, right? Whatever the contemplative practice is, if you screw up, if you want to put it that way, if you fall off the wagon, if you had a thought while meditating, whatever, right? Whatever happens, if you lose your focus or you lose your mojo, just notice, just notice and choose to, if you choose to get back on the wagon. And if you don't, you don't, nothing's wrong. Yeah. And I mean, if I could offer just a piece of practical advice, I mean, I've, I'm into meditation now about the same as I'm into the showering, the cold showers and the cold plunges. It's about six years or so. And I can say it's super helpful to have a mantra, especially for those who feel they're constantly getting distracted by other thoughts. This comes back to the whole humans aren't very good at multitasking thing. If you have what you might consider an invasive thought, yeah, go ahead and notice it. But one way to help it pass on is to come back to the mantra. And sometimes the mantra can be practical. Like sometimes my mantra is actually just breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. If that's my mantra, it focuses me on the activity. And for some reason, it works really well for me personally, driving out what I would consider invasive thoughts. But a mantra can be anything. I like multi-syllabic or multi-word mantras that kind of match up with the inhale and the exhale. But 
whatever works for you is great. So that might be just a very basic, helpful tip and, and why mantras are so popular pairing with meditation is because they help you stay focused on that, that breathing activity. Yeah, you know, I like the monosyllabic mantras like OM or ONE, right? And yet, and I do find the mantra really helpful and I love mantra meditation. And yet you could also say, just go back to your breath. It's just go back to your breath, go back to your mantra, go back to your breath, go back to journaling. For me, go back to meditating, right? If I haven't been meditating, I just finish recording and take 20 minutes and meditate. Sounds like you're resolute and able to pull that off. And I think, you know, other people might struggle with that. But uh, having a tool, a toolbox is important. Here's something else I picked up from rereading Atomic Habits by James Clear. He used it in terms of doing negative things. But I think if I remember correctly, he said something about when you pick up that cookie, you don't need to eat. You say, I'm picking up this cookie. I don't need to be eating this cookie. And you say it out loud. I'm eating another cookie. I really don't need to be eating another cookie, right? Well, I could do the same thing. And I just did, right? When I finish recording with you, Riley, I'm going to meditate. I think that helps, right? Just to say that out loud. To recognize it. Yeah, I'm telling myself that's what I need to do. And that's what I'm going to do. Good. No, I love that. And I think we even mentioned in that last episode that you and I are similar that way. We're kind of like all or nothing. Yeah. Either either cold turkey or all in, you know, type type people that just decide to do it and do it. Um, and other folks, maybe they have to be talked into it or they got to talk themselves into it. And that's fine. And having the desire to do it is probably more important uh, than anything, because if you let that desire kind of fester within you, it'll it'll take. Yeah. You know, to your point, Riley, the first time I went to my neighbor's pool to take that cold plunge, the only reason I didn't just dive into the deep end is my back. So I had to actually walk the steps into the pool. And uh, I thought, if I walk the steps, it's going to make it easier to chicken out. But I just, you know, I focused on my breath. I walked in there and I had my kids with me and they were, they were filming, right? They were just making a video to send to mom because mom was out of town. She one-upped me too. She was in Utah, so she was able to do what you're doing. Uh, her, her son-in-law has the, the ice bath in the backyard and broke the ice and she got in there and spent 20 minutes in there. It's a long time. She had her eyes closed, by the way. Yeah, I know. That's not how you do it. They, they have the, the impression or the idea that you need to spend so many minutes per week and that you could knock out all those minutes at once. I don't know if you have any comment about that. Well, there's a, uh, the, 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 physio- the physiological benefits c- come from doing multiple cold plunges over a longer period of time, but aggregating up to a certain amount of time per week is that's kind of what I've heard as well. Right. So I, I don't think that doing it all at once is the way to go, but you could, you know, you could do 20 minutes every day, maybe, I don't know, but she's been about 20 minutes. She had her eyes closed. She said her third eye opened up. She said she was seeing colors. I mean, and then the, the shivering happens later, right? When you get out and you have to get back up to body temperature, right? That was interesting to hear her describe her experience, but I walked down the stairs, you know, and I, but I really just wanted to dive in the deep end, you know. I I don't think I've ever gone 20 minutes, Uh, not in an ice bath, like the one I've got out and back right now where I have to break the ice off the top. That that would put me in hypothermia for sure. Um, Well, my wife did it for her 50th. So you've been, uh, you've been, we've both been outdone by a 50 year old woman. Yeah, geez, that's, (laughs) that's impressive. Impressive. But we're consistent, right? We do it every day. Isn't that, aren't we the tortoise in this story then? We just keep doing this every day and we'll win the race, right? (laughs) It's not a competition. I mean, I really love having mine in the backyard, honestly, and I can just sit there and 
kind of be a little bit distracted from being in the bath by the birds. I love the birds singing in the morning, and I usually like to do it in the morning rather than doing it at night. Anyway. Yeah, that brings me back to I'm looking for less friction. How can I do these things with less friction? So a lot of that is environmental design, you know, designing your own environment. That brings me back to James Clear again. I know you've read Atomic Habits. It's such a good book. I reread it a couple of times this last week. Great book. Well, Chris, I, I think we've kind of talked this one um, not into the ground, but I mean, we've, we've talked through it a bit. And I think there's great benefit to constantly being aware of the habits that you're forming and recognizing that we can form new habits and, and go different directions if that's where our life you know, should go. And it starts with these small steps. It's just taking one step at a time and just doing something new and then recognizing what it does for you. And if it takes, great. And if it doesn't, you move on to the next one. But a contemplative life is filled with these sorts of habits and rituals. And uh, the people that I actually look up to and, and kind of hold in high regard in terms of how they live their lives, they all have these very strong and positive habits that they've developed over long periods of time. And that's ultimately where I'm trying to get to is just have a, a strong daily or weekly routine that gives me a lot of satisfaction and sets me up for success in multiple areas of my life. And that's that's what it's about for me. Yeah. And checking in, you know, like we're doing here, checking in with you, Riley, checking in with you, the listener. Right. That's part of it. Thanks for being my uh, co-host. Thanks for being my accountability partner. And thank you for listening. Oh, I like that. I think that's true. Well, yeah, that's what we're doing here, right? I mean, that's what it feels like for sure. I mean, we kind of hold each other accountable to various things. And, and when we're deciding to do a topic and we, we choose a topic, we have to study it out and we hold each other accountable to doing that. And I think it makes us both a little better. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Riley. Thank you, man. Well, for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week.